Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to the second episode of this Stradley Ronan podcast, hosted by Dave Grimm, Mina Larmore, and Chris Zimmerman. Throughout the episode, you'll learn about rules that will impact the fund industry, including ESG, fund names, and cybersecurity. What should fund boards expect? As always, for the latest news, alerts, and podcasts, please visit stradley.com and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Welcome to Stradley Podcasts. I'm Dave Grimm, and I'm joined with two of my terrific partners, Mina Larmore and Chris Zimmerman. And Chris, Mina, and I were just talking about what is coming down the pike from the SEC that might be helpful to share with fund boards. And there's a lot, uh, a lot of different initiatives that the SEC is, is working on that we think board should be keeping an eye on. Um, we're going to spend the next 15 minutes or so focused on three of them, uh, the ESG rule, the names rule, and the cybersecurity rule. And what we're going to try to lay out for you is some practical tips on what to expect about these rules. In particular, we're going to give you just a quick summary of what the key provisions are in those rules, a, a flavor of the industry comments on those rules, and interesting tidbits for boards to think about as uh, assuming these rules get adopted, um, which we think will happen uh, coming up here. So with that uh, introduction, Mina, let's start with you. Can you walk us through a little bit about the ESG rule that the SEC proposed? Sure. Thanks, Dave. Hi, everyone. Um, yes, the SEC has definitely been busy. Um, so with the ESG rule and with ESG in general, it's all about doing what you say you're doing. And the SEC has you know, expressed concern that investors don't know what they're buying with ESG products or that advisors are characterizing their ESG strategies inappropriately. And so sought to address this with the ESG proposal. The proposal is really primarily a disclosure rule. Uh, it attempts to establish a standardized framework for ESG strategies. So it outlines three categories of ESG funds. And then along with these categories, it has rather prescriptive disclosure obligations related to each category that vary based on the significance of the ESG factors to a fund strategy. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail on all of these disclosure obligations, but at a high level, the three types of ESG funds that the SEC has identified are integration funds, ESG-focused funds, and impact funds. Generally, an ESG integration fund considers one or more ESG factors alongside other non-ESG factors. So the ESG factors aren't you know, more critical to an investment decision than another factor such as you know, earnings. Um, an ESG-focused fund focuses on one or more ESG factors by using them as a significant or main consideration in selecting investments. And then an ESG impact fund seeks to achieve a specific measurable ESG impact or outcome. Uh, not in the rule, but there also would be a fourth category of funds, which is you know, no consideration of ESG at all. Um, so what does all of this mean for a board? The proposal does not necessarily impose new reporting or other obligations like some other SEC rules do and some that we've discussed on other podcasts. Um, but primarily, the board's role in this new ESG proposal boils down to one of disclosure and compliance oversight. Uh, you know, the board should understand how an advisor evaluates ESG, how it determines which of the three buckets included in the proposal a fund falls into, 
how it monitors whether the fund remains appropriately placed in that bucket, and then, you know, most importantly, that the fund's disclosure documents speak to what the fund is actually doing. Um, I think boards just should really understand the policies and procedures that an advisor has to ensure that a fund's ESG disclosures are supportable, that ESG decisions are documented, so that you have comfort from a registration statement and compliance oversight perspective. Uh, Dave, do you want to discuss some industry comments, which I guess now as a bonus, um, given the SEC glitch, there's more time for people to comment, um, but we can uh, talk about maybe the comments that uh, have been uploaded successfully so far. Yeah, um, I think that when I look at the industry comments, um, there's a lot of them, right? This, this is a rule that is pretty unpopular with the industry. Um, and, you know, we don't have time today to summarize them all. I think, you know, broadly, some of the themes in those comments are that the rule proposal elevates ESG over all other kinds of important investment strategies, right, which, which isn't, isn't, isn't the right way to go in a lot of ways, right? And then another big theme in the comment letters is the SEC separately is doing an entire overhaul of corporate ESG disclosure. And because the asset management industry is users of that corporate disclosure, the asset management view of that is please finish that so we can see what kind of information we're going to be getting from uh, the companies that we invest in, in order to tailor what we tell the world about our fund and our investment. So, um, those are, those are some big themes. I think another, the last thing I would say about the industry comments is that, interestingly, there's not a whole lot in them focused on the board role, and that can probably be chalked up to a couple different reasons. One is that the SEC doesn't talk a whole lot about the board role in these proposals, so there's not much to comment on. And then the other thing is there's so many other issues to comment on. Um, the board issues just you know didn't make it high enough on the list to make it into a focus area in people's comments letters. So that's uh, a little bit on what's going on in the industry comments. Um, Mina, I'll turn it back to you to uh, take us through the rest of ESG. Yeah, sure. So um, this rule proposal wasn't necessarily a surprise in terms of you know what it seeks to do. It's consistent with what we've seen the staffs focus on in the ESG sweep exams that they've been conducting since I think 2021, and um, you know I've heard anecdotally they've been over 100 exams and they. Um, published a, a risk alert on what they've seen in the exams and these are again the topics it's you know all about doing what you say you're doing. Um, we've seen these same types of comments through the registration statement comment process, um, as well as the some SEC enforcement actions, like the most recent BNY enforcement action. Um, it's clear that the SEC wants to know and wants disclosure to be very specific about what investments are put through an ESG lens, um, how the ESG lens uh, in, impacts the fund as a whole. Um, they want funds that have ESG in their name to have an 80% policy, which we'll talk about later. Um, and so given all of this background and what we know the SEC wants, I think from a disclosure oversight uh, perspective, it's important for boards to just understand and educate themselves on, you know, how a particular fund implements its ESG strategy, 
how the factors are considered in making an investment decision, whether it's E, S, or G, or all three, um, and you know whether these E, S, and G are determinative as to buy or sell decisions, or you know just a factor. Um, I think boards should understand the use of third parties, external data, uh, how an advisor's proxy voting policies look at ESG of uh, public companies. Um, uh, how the advisor engages with their portfolio companies. Um, and then also just, you know, what third party initiatives the advisor has signed on to, you know, net zero asset management, UNPRI, um, just, just, you know, things that could be out there in the world as this advisor saying that, you know, they commit to this and just kind of understand what that is. Um, and then how all of the above are factored into the dis funds disclosure documents. Um, Chris, I know for multi-manager funds, there's some different aspects or angles uh, that boards should maybe think about um, in terms of subadvisor oversight. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Thanks, Rena. So whether this, uh, this, this specific rule is adopted um, as proposed or not, uh, I think boards, of course, should be aware of the subadvisor's strategies and the portfolios that they oversee. You know, which is which is in many ways similar to how um, it would be for a directly advised fund. Um, you know, understanding where your fund sits on the SEC hierarchy, uh, if adopted, is going to be important to uh, understand. Uh, you know, whether or not multi-managed um, or not. You know, however, for multi-managed funds, boards can rely on the primary advisor to assess and report on the subadvisor strategies. Uh, and, it may also be appropriate to receive presentations uh, in this regard, uh, which can take on various flavors, including addressing all the questions that, that Mina raised earlier. Um, overall, you know, as, as a reminder, trustees uh, sign the registration statement on the, of the funds. So, you know, board should look to the advisor's process for understanding the subadvisor strategies to make sure that any of the disclosures that are included for ESG um, are appropriate. That's a great wrap on ESG. Thanks to both of you for walking through that. Um, let's turn to the next rule on our hit list today, which is the names rule. I think um, Chris and Mina, you guys are going to sort of together provide a, a, a summary of the rule and, and a view on some of the industry comments. So take it away. All right. So there's lots of industry climb around this one, um, and perhaps rightly so. Um, among other things, the proposed amendments to the names rule really expand the universe of funds that will be subject to the rule. So um, the rule would now include funds with names that suggest a focus on investments who have a particular characteristic. So this is growth or value funds and surprise, surprise, ESG funds. Um, so tying this back to the ESG proposal discussion we just had, uh, the, the new names rule would bring ESG focused and impact funds into the rule and require them to have an 80% policy. Um, another ESG related aspect of the names rule is that the SEC specifically called out that integration funds, so those that consider ESG alongside other factors, would per se be materially deceptive or misleading under the proposal if they include ESG in their name. Um, so they can't. Um, there's another other elements associated with the proposed rule, including some specifications of circumstances under which a fund may depart from its 80% policy, and then a time frame requiring the fund to come back into compliance, which is generally 30 days. Um, so what does this mean for boards? 
Boards currently already approve 80% policies under 35D1, so that wouldn't change, uh, but boards may be asked to approve new or revised policies for funds given the expanded scope of the rule. Um, as they currently do, boards should just understand a fund's process for ensuring compliance with its 80% policy and monitoring adherence to such policy. And then the other aspect of the proposal that implicates boards is related to the record keeping requirement. For funds that do not adopt an 80% policy, they are required to maintain a written record of the analysis supporting why they don't need an 80% policy. And in the rule, the SEC noted that this would give you know, compliance personnel and fund boards um, assistance in evaluating the funds analysis. So did suggest that this would be something that the boards would see. Um, Chris, I'll turn to you if you want to discuss industry comments on the proposal. Thanks, Mina. So as Mina mentioned, there's been a fair amount of uh, you know, comments to the names rule from industry participants, uh, including from Stradley's disclosure group, uh, which is an internal group here at Stradley that thinks through and addresses various uh, disclosure issues on behalf of our clients. Uh, so a, a comment response letter to this, to this rule is right within uh, the bailiwick of our disclosure group. So with respect to the board, um, the SEC did request comments uh, in a few instances in the proposing release that suggested or contemplated a role of the board, um, such as you know, what Mina just mentioned, uh, making a finding uh, with respect to the analysis of a fund uh, that does not adopt an 80% policy, or instead of uh, having a 30-day limit uh, that Mina reviewed, whether the board should instead be notified or even approve of the fund's departure from the 80% policy that exceeds 30 days. Now, in each of these instances, commentators have generally argued against any sort of board approval, as as it's you know generally outside of the board's role of that of oversight. Although notification of a temporary departure could be appropriate, um, as most boards uh, receive notification now in any event. Now, beyond the role of the board uh, in general, again, there's been a fair amount of criticism of the proposed rule. In particular, there's been criticism on the expansion of the name subject to the rule. Uh, you know, there's likely going to be interpretive issues associated with the expansion of funds names to strategies, you know, which is going to have added uh, compliance costs, uh, you know, for strategies that require, in essence, flexibility and, and nuance. Uh, the other element is that the temporary departure from investment policies may force sale of securities at inopportune times. Uh, the terms value and growth, for example, are inherently subjective names and based upon expectations at that moment in time uh, could result in forced sales due to the application of the fund's name with no further consideration of things like uh, tax implications or active portfolio management of the portfolio. Now, I think overall, the, the overall arching, overarching concern here is that funds simply will choose not to convey important information in a fund's name and you know, potentially rely on some generic fund's name so as not to trip up uh, the requirements under the proposed rule. And not having uh, a fund name that conveys any sort of meaningful information is ultimately at the end of the day, not going to be very helpful uh, to shareholders uh, of the fund. And uh, with that, I turn it uh, back over to Dave. Excellent summary of the issues, both of you. Thank you for doing that. Anything else on names rule? Uh, or is it time to turn to our last rule of the day, which is cybersecurity? So when it comes to cyber, look, I think everyone in the industry is spending a ton of time on 
um, cyber issues already. And the SEC has proposed a rule that would impose some specific legal requirements to be implemented into the existing processes that folks in our industry already have. Um, at a high level, the rule proposal has four main elements. Um, one is the adoption of a cybersecurity risk management policy and procedure. The second is reporting of certain cyber incidents to the SEC. The third is disclosure to the public about cybersecurity related risks and incidents. And the fourth are some record keeping obligations that relate to the first three. Um, in terms of what it means for boards, um, if, it, if this rule gets adopted uh, as it's proposed, I think that the actions that the board is going to have to take, right, they're going to have to approve policies and procedures, the cybersecurity risk management policies and procedures that have to be developed. And then there will be some annual reporting on how it's going under the program and whether there are any material changes to the program. Um, the last thing I would say sort of about the board role is, you know, as with all of these issues we've been talking about, but particularly in the area of cybersecurity, it's really important to try to find that, to stay on the right side of the line between oversight and not getting into the the weeds of, of cybersecurity, right? Um, there are experts at, you know, every manager that you work with, right, on these cybersecurity issues, and that's what their job is to do every day. And so rely on them um, and their expertise. In terms of what um, the industry comment has been on this rule proposal, I think uh, there's a lot of concern about a lot of different elements of it, but I want to just focus particularly on the board um, piece of it. I think, broadly speaking, uh, there is support for the idea that the board will be asked to approve the policies and procedures um, and be reported to in an annual way, right? That's a that's a uh, an approach that works in a lot of areas and I, I think is a sensible way. Um, to, to deal with cybersecurity issues as well. Um, another point that was made in the comment letters vis-a-vis -vis the board is around the importance of boards having the option to rely on certifications from primary service providers, um, right? When you think about where the cyber risks lie in the fund world, it's at the service providers, right? That's 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 where the, the information is. And so um, allowing the board to rely on certifications, I think, is an, is an important part of implementing this rule. Um, the one piece of the release on cyber that I think board should keep an eye on relates to this service provider concept. Um, there's some talk about the board's role vis-a-vis -vis reviewing contracts and risk assessments by service providers. And I think it's going to be important for that guidance to be calibrated correctly so that, of course, you know, the board having uh, an oversight role with respect to those issues makes sense, um, but drawing them into the specifics of a particular contract provision, right? That That's something that the boards should be able to rely on others to, to, to make sure is okay. So that's a little bit on what the rule says, 
what the industry comments have been around the board piece. Chris, Nina, anything you'd like to uh, chime in on when it comes to cybersecurity? Yeah, I'll just touch on, um, Dave, what you discussed in that the board isn't required to be experts in cyber. I thought it was interesting that the corporate cyber role does have a disclosure requirement for boards to disclose their level of expertise on the subject of cyber. And this fund board rule does not. So um, to me, that was sort of indicative of the SEC not expecting that fund boards would have expertise um, on cyber and, and, you know, can rely on experts that do have that expertise. And, and Dave, you touched upon this uh, already, but, you know, uh, obviously the board needs to approve the policies and procedures and receive uh, an annual written report. Um, I would say it's, you know, it is sounding familiar to what we've seen with, with things like liquidity risk management and derivatives risk management. Um, you know, now we are essentially, um, you know, seeing that with cybersecurity risk management as well. Great. Well said. Thank you. So we hope this gives you a flavor of these three rules, which are coming at us. Uh, as a reminder, these rules are not yet final, right? They've been proposed by the SEC. There's been a public comment period. And so now it's up to the SEC to decide whether to adopt. We do expect that all three of them will be adopted um, at some point in 2023. Uh, hopefully revised to address many of the thoughtful comments that, 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 that folks shared with the SEC. So um, with that, I'd just like to say thank you so much to my uh, fantastic colleagues for hanging out with me today and, and sharing their insights with you on these rules. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us. If you like what you heard, please tune in for the other part of our series of podcasts. That one's about some SEC rules that most boards have already heard about, um, but there's more to come, valuation and, and derivatives. Um, so check check that podcast out. That's a wrap for today. Thanks again so much for listening. Have a, have a good day. Thanks so much for tuning in to this Stradley Ronan podcast. Stradley Ronan is a full service firm with an award-winning investment management practice. Recently ranked in band one for nationwide registered funds in the 2022 edition of Chambers USA, America's leading lawyers for business, Stradley's investment management group works closely with its securities litigation, corporate, tax, intellectual property, and other practice areas to manage clients' legal challenges. For the latest news, alerts, and podcasts, be sure to follow Stradley Ronan on LinkedIn and Twitter.